0: So, uh, you might might be able to say uh, that the Hanafis are foodies. Can anyone here identify? We enjoy our food and foods of various kinds. From low end stuff like Takis, that would be Emma. By the way, uh, when we had the coffee shop, Cleek came up with a grilled cheese sandwich with Takis in it and that was one in my 242 pound days. I ate a lot of those. Yes. What was the name of that sandwich? What you talk about? Okay. So from low-end stuff like Takis (laughs) to high-end stuff like uh, we go out east, we eat lobster with my dad. It's really great when you get a lobster that's still got eggs in it. It's like lobster caviar. It is delicious or ribeye or venison barbacoa. Uh, what did we have last night celebrating Emma's birthday? Was the, uh, how do you, what do they call those tacos? Tacos. Baria tacos, where you like dip them in the juice. Oh, it, you will break out in tongues. Delicious stuff. Delicious. We like our food. We're foodies. I like uh, La Jalienza. I know I'm not pronouncing that right. But uh, if you go to there in Mexican town, uh, the chicharrones, delicious. Pure fat, so healthy for you. Um, noodleopia, which my family doesn't like so much, but there's so much garlic, you will not be threatened by a vampire for three months after eating there because it is nothing but garlic. Or um, I love going to Green Lantern in Royal Oak. Some of the best pizza you will ever have. Or how about the burger place out of a gas station in Dearborn called Tasties? We like our food. Conservatively speaking, we have, one of my kids counted up, over 200 cookbooks, cook magazines, things like that. Thai, French, Indian, Mediterranean, Italian, wild game, on and on and on and on. We like uh, staple American fare meat and potatoes stuff and then uh, exotic dishes. We like some of those cooking shows. We've watched, just watched uh, Andrew Zimmerman, was it? No, no, the other guy on Cooking in the Dominican Republic, we just watched that. We watch uh, It's a Little Cringy, and Kevin and Javier kind of got robbed, but Holiday Baking Championship, anybody watch that? Um, Diners, Dives, yes, that. We watch a lot of food shows. All of that to say, you might say, boy, the Hanafis are a little bit infatuated if not obsessed with food, and you would be right. Can anyone here identify with that? Foodies. Well, I'm glad to know that we're not the only one, and I'm not just talking about potential people here. Do you know the Bible itself is not just infatuated with food, but rather obsessed with food? Have you ever taken a moment to think about how many times in the Bible Food is mentioned and not in insignificant ways. For example, first part of Scripture, first chapters, is not a decision given to our ancestors. Adam and Eve predicated on whether they would eat or not eat from a certain tree and, eat and not eat from other trees. You Remember that, and, and just so we're clear, they, they sort of failed uh, on that decision. You keep going and you get to say the Passover and the Passover meal and God said, if you eat leavened bread, you will be out of the kingdom. Do you remember that? Or how about all the times there's some kind of encounter with an emissary from God. Sometimes the angel of the Lord, and what do they do? They slay a calf and they bake bread and there's a meal and something special happens then? Or how about God says to Israel, I'm going to send you into the land full of milk and honey? Or how about all the festivals and the feasts that we have with all the elaborate uh, teaching about food and grain and wine and all of that? Or how about the fact that there's kosher food and there's non-kosher food? I'm just giving you a few examples here. Or how about the imagery Scripture itself uses describing food and our relationship with God? The psalmist said in Psalm 34 verse eight, taste and see that the Lord is good. The psalmist said in Psalm 63 verse three I think it is, "Um, my soul is satisfied in God as with fat and rich food. You have the invitation that Pastor Nick just read from Isaiah, come eat without money or without price you get to the pages of the, New, of the New Testament, Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life. You go a little bit further, not once but twice, Paul gives the early church teachings on what you do concerning meat sacrificed to idols. When to eat it, when not to eat it. Jesus instituted something called the Lord's Supper, which usually was accompanied by a full meal that the body of Christ would enjoy together. Paul, excuse me, Paul confronts Peter because Peter will chow down with Gentiles when the Jews aren't around, but when his Jewish brothers come around, oh no, oh no, I, I can't eat with them. And he was showing partiality in the fear of man. And of course, the book ends talking about a great banquet to come, the wedding, supper, the I'm just trying to make the point. The Bible actually talks about food a lot. And it does so in very significant ways. And I wanna ask you the question, why does the Bible talk about food so much and why in such significant ways? Susan and I were talking about that last week. And I'm gonna hold the answer for now, but I, I wanna tell you why it doesn't do that? Not so that we can have weird little fad diets like the Daniel fast, okay? That, that's not why. So today, we come to the only miracle outside the resurrection itself that's mentioned in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the feeding of the 5,000. And as we're gonna see, the feeding of the 5,000 is not exactly an accurate title. There's more than 5,000. So I wanna preach to you this morning on the feeding of 5,000 plus. I've got three points and I'll take up each point as we move through the text and hit them successively. First of all, and this is the first heading on which we will look at this text, the heading is Nitzomai." You remember that word from like three or four weeks ago? Say it with me, say Nitzomai." Yeah. And with that, a COVID breakout just happened with all the spitting going on. The compassion of Jesus. That's what I mean. Splachnitzomai, the compassion of Jesus. Now, picking up from last week, what happened to John the Baptist last week? He was beheaded. We learned last week about how we should walk. That is, we should walk in repentant faith. We should walk in repentance, right? We should be bold with the truth, and we should be confident in the outcome. And John the Baptist was the example for that. John the Baptist loses his neck at a lewd party. Jesus then, if you look at verse 13, gets a report. He heard this. When Jesus heard this, that is, that they came and took his body, verse 12, and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard it, what did Jesus do? He withdraws on a boat to be by himself. Why do you think he's doing that? Have you ever received heartbreaking news? Have you ever um, received heart-shattering news? Did you just want to go hang out with a bunch of people? No, he wanted to be alone, right? It seems, I, I don't think it's a far stretch to say, he wanted to get alone to grieve. Fully God and fully man. And grief can be a very godly response. Three times we read in Scripture, actually, the Son of God wept. Time one, John 11, Lazarus dies. There's a bunch of sorrow in the aftermath, and Jesus himself weeps. Luke 19, Jesus is preaching the gospel. He's encouraging Jerusalem to come to his grace, and they will not. And he weeps over them because of their brokenness, rebellion, and refusal to receive grace. And then we know from Hebrews chapter 5 that in the garden, when Jesus was alone, right on the precipice of the cross, he not only sweat great drops of blood, Hebrews 5 and 7 says he wept. So it is fair to say Jesus knows what it means to grieve, yes? So he goes to be alone and the crowds follow him. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. It's kind of a remarkable scene. Now, see a Galilee, that's where he is. Isn't that big a sea, but it's, you know, good sized lake. And they would follow him around, which means they had to be moving faster than the boat. They're trying to figure out where he's going to come ashore. When Jesus sees the crowd following him, here's what he doesn't do. Here's what I would probably do. I would probably say, can't you see? I need to be alone. But what does Jesus do? Jesus actually disembarks, takes the boat to the shore, and he goes to those people. Verse 14 says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had spoknitzomai. There's the word. He had compassion on them. Do you see that? So again, we're talking about splachnitzomai, compassion. That word has reference to, you, you break it apart, has to do with being so moved by something, you feel it down in your viscera. You feel it down in your bowels. Have you ever been so moved, happy, sad, glad, mad, whatever the case may be, you don't just think it right here, but you feel it down here? That's what's going on. He had great compassion as he looked at those crowds. What do you look at? What do you feel when you look at crowds? Now, I want to note a few things about the compassion of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus. What we're going to see about the compassion of Jesus is it was true compassion. In other words, it's a compassion that led to action. It was a feeling that led down to his feet. Moving out and doing something. A couple ways we see this fleshed out, compassion action. Verse 14 says that Jesus, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. He had compassion on them. And what did he do? He healed the sick. Jesus' healings were nothing like the tomfoolery of the so-called faith healers that are so often prevalent today who, you know, heal things that can't be substantiated. One of the big things is like lengthening a person's leg. They put them down. They say, oh, did you know that one, that leg is two inches shorter? And then they kind of stretch it out. Boom, what a miracle. You just made both legs the same length. It, it, you, you can, you, I can mention names of people that you probably listen to some of their music and that's what they do. Or you have people... Who say they healed a backache. Well, how do you substantiate that? Though we all get backaches. Or toothaches or sinus infections, on and on. You get the picture? That's not what we're talking about right here. Jesus Christ did miracles that were verifiable. (laughs) Happened right in front of people's eyes. One time, some lepers, they got some bad leprosy, and bam, just like that boom, leprosy, gone. Another time a guy's paralyzed, he can't walk, and Jesus says, take up your pelt and walk, and that's exactly what the guy does. Another time, a couple times, blind people say, have mercy on me, O son of David, and just like that, they can see. Other times, somebody cannot hear, and all of a sudden, they're no longer deaf. In other words, Jesus healed the sick, in bona fide, radical, miraculous ways. And of course, the miracles here point to something far deeper than physical healing, right? They, they point to a far greater healing. We'll get to that. But these were miracles that were signs that he, in fact, was the Messiah. But for now, for now, I just wanna say that people in the medical community do reflect when they do it in Jesus' name, even if they don't, it's still a reflection to some extent of the compassion of Jesus Christ in the area of healing the sick. And I am so grateful that we have medical people in this very church called in the name of Jesus to bring healing to the physically suffering and mentally suffering. And I kinda went through some of those names. As I, was pre- as I was preparing this. And so I'm brag on a little bit. You have Doc Haver, right? I don't know where he's at, but I'm sure he's here somewhere. And I mean, he, he started here when he was just in medical school. Do you guys remember that? Just freshly married and all that. And think of all the people that he serves. Think of now Doc Lee, Han, brain surgeon. He texts me questions about brain surgery sometimes at night and I help him out the best I can. <laughs> You have Courtney McClellan, who's studying to be an NP in mental health and psychiatry. And right now, she serves as a nurse in that very needed area. You have Mel, who's going to graduate this April, a PA, emergency room medicine. Joe, dentist. Joe, when do you graduate? You, you graduate pretty soon, May. Came here, studied, and was at the church and... Now he's gonna be, we're gonna miss him and we're gonna make sure we really pray you guys off, but they'll be moving as he moves on in the military as a dentist. We have the Daniels who serve as pharmacists to make sure that people can get medications. Listen, I'm just saying that that is a reflection when it's done in Jesus' name of compassion in healing the sick and hurting. I praise God for that. Well, as we move back to the text, the splachnitzumai, we actually see Jesus not only heal, but the big idea of this text, he does what? He feeds people, he feeds them. This is of course what the section is about. Now, I wanna thread a needle right here on this, okay? Because we who rightly reject the social gospel need to be reminded that Jesus' compassion did extend to the whole person, amen? including their physicality. We like to point out, hey, Jesus could have freed the Jewish people from Roman oppression, and he did not, and he did not. But this text also tells us he fed 5,000 people. And what is even more, he fed them knowing they were gonna reject him. How do you know that? I go to John chapter six, cognate passage, parallel passage. And this, this, this is a hand, if you paraphrase, they saw him do the miracle feeding. They're like, wow, he's got some great tricks in his bag. He'd be a great king. And they try and take him by force to make him king because he provides the bread. Totally missing the point. And Jesus slips away. Nonetheless, Jesus, knowing all of that, fed them out of compassion, out of splachnitzomai. He had compassion on them. So we, we do well to remember James 1, Pure and undefiled religion is this. To visit the orphans and the widow in affliction while keeping yourself unspotted from the world. We do well to remember 1 John 3, verses 17 and 18. If anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, and shuts his heart up to his need. In other words, I ain't doing anything about it. Tell me, he says, how does the love of God dwell in this person? So he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk merely, but in deed and truth. And thus Paul would write in Galatians chapter 6, so then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those who are of the household of faith. So, closing this first point, is there any place, a good question for all of us to ask, is there any place I am putting compassion in action? That's a good question, isn't it? As we look at the example of Jesus. Is there any place I am putting Compassion action, am I helping say, I mean, there's, there's no one size fits all, right? We have to make sure, well, you do this, why don't you do this? Like, there's different lanes. Helping with literacy. Mentoring kids who maybe don't have anybody to mentor them. Feeding the poor. Medical missions. Standing up for life. I have a huge burden for that, you guys know. Standing in the gap for kids who are being led to the slaughter. There's tons and tons of ways. And we can't do everything. No, we're called to do everything. But I think we're all called to do something. Somewhere, you think? It may be a formal thing. Some of these things are better done formally through an organization or church. But other things are done better on your own. And so my question simply to all of us is, as we move into 2024 is, where am I showing compassion in action? Where am I reflecting nitsumai, the love and compassion of Christ in serving others? Now, while this text surely motivates us to compassion based on the example of Jesus, it is certainly there for an even bigger reason, to point us to the ultimate display of compassion that is the person and work of Jesus Christ who he is, and what he's come to do. So point to salvation, the identity and mission of Jesus. Y'all with me? Verse 15, we read, Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away. They're giving Jesus command. We'll come back to that. Kind of crazy. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go over into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now we'll come back to this verse for some other reasons, but just hone in on the word desolate. This is a, what kind of place? Desolate place. This is a word that can be translated as it often is, as desert, sometimes as wilderness. Now, who is the scripture for? All of us. But if we want to understand what the Scripture means, we do want to step into its context, right? So who was the Scriptures directly written to? Jewish people. I'm going somewhere with this. A Jewish reader or a Jewish listener to the Gospel of Matthew, when they would often read through a Gospel in an early church worship service, when they heard the word desolate, or wilderness, or desert, what do you think might've come to their mind? Which is why we need to read the whole Bible. What do you think would've come to their mind? Exodus, boom, and why, Tom? Yes, yes, the people of God are in the wilderness, and all of a sudden, they're what? Hear my stomach growling? They're hungry, right? So in Exodus chapter 16, in the desert, the text says back there, in the wilderness, in that desolate place, God sends manna from heaven. He says, behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven on you. He says that through Moses, the Lord speaking to the people of God. Miraculously provided bread. Now, the point is simple. The point is simple. Just as God provided bread in the Old Testament, in the wilderness, Jesus is now providing bread in the New Testament in the wilderness. So who's Jesus? Who's Jesus? God, Jesus is God. There's so many ways that people miss that attest to the deity of Jesus Christ. John makes the point even plainer when he quotes Jesus saying, hey, 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 it wasn't Moses that was providing the bread back then, but it was my father. Now, watch how this plays out. He takes five loaves and two fish. And he orders, verse 19, everyone to sit down. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And by the way, they're so it's so beautiful to be able to wrestle with the text of God. I'm so grateful for that opportunity uh, as a pastor to, to really spend hours in the Word of God. The word sit down is actually a very technical word. It is a word that re- refers to reclining at a banquet. You understand that the way people ate in, the, in that day, in that world, wasn't at a, like a tall table like we eat, but on the ground, sometimes with a low platform or table, and they would kind of recline on their side, and that's how they would eat. Jesus is saying he's pointing to the ultimate banquet to come, I think, but he's saying I am about to give you a banquet. And then we read in verse twenty-one, he read as Emma read for us. He 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 fed not just five thousand, but what does the text say in verse twenty-one? Five thousand men, plus or besides women and children. So. Most people say this is a conservative estimate. Let's say every man, a wife and two kids, and maybe some of them weren't married, but some of them were married and had six kids. So just average for each man, three other people, a wife and two kids, how many is that? 20,000, 20,000 people. Have you ever, 21, 15, it's all good. A lot, okay, (laughs) That wasn't me answering wrong this time. Wow, what's this church coming to? That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. Have you ever had, you ever find out, hey baby, we're having somebody come over tonight? What? Like, I only got 10 hours to get ready for two other people. How about 20,000 other people? Imagine the logistics involved in that. We saw the logistics when the Habers pulled together with great planning and your assistance, this meal for everybody for Christmas Eve. For Catherine Hopper this morning, or the upcoming meals for the story of God. It takes pre-planning. Imagine all the trucks that would be necessary to cart in enough food for 20,000 miles. What a task. When we look at verse 19 again, and this is where it gets thick. I love this. He ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves. After blessing the food, he breaks the bread. I just want to slow down. Do you know what he probably would have prayed when he blessed it? It's a Jewish prayer that Jewish people even pray to this day before a meal. Blessed are you, our Lord, our God, King of the universe, who brings food forth, who brings forth bread, rather, from the earth. It's it's it's, it's a prayer, been prayed for thousands of years. And this, this is fascinating to me. Mark tells us that it seems uh, that as Jesus broke the bread, it multiplied. This is the way Mark literally puts it. Giving thanks, he broke the bread, and he kept on giving bread to the disciples. That's where the multiplication was happening. Now, there have been people who have suggested, here's the miracle. It's a miracle of human philanthropy. It's a human of, of, of kindness, of generosity, of no longer being greedy. That really what happened, people say, is somebody saw, hey, a kid has given up his little five loaves of barley and his two fish. I guess we should give up our lunch too. And now everybody's being generous and everybody eats. And even one more conservative commentary said that interpretation has to do a whole lot more with 19th century liberalism than the actual teaching of Scripture. What we have here is nothing other than a pure, unadulterated miracle. That the one, (laughs) the one who spoke everything into existence was doing a miracle on the molecular level. That the one who spoke things into existence ex nihilo, out of nothing, The God who at the beginning said light come out of darkness, the God who said let material things come out of immaterial things, the God who said let existing things come out of non-existing things is doing just that in the multiplication of this bread, these five measly barley loaves, probably the size of hockey pucks and a couple of small fish. This is a miracle. A massive miracle indisputable proportions and he did so lavishly just like god how many baskets are left over 12 why 12 why not 13 why not nine why not 11 and a half many people think again jesus as the the parallel with exodus 16 the feeding of the 12 tribes in the desert in the desolate place in the wilderness well, Jesus as the God of the 12 tribes of Israel and the God of the Gentiles was once again providing. And it says they ate and they were satisfied. Ate and they were, see in other words, this is putting on a blast, Jesus' identity as God. Can you see that? Be with me. He can, that Exodus 16, Matthew 14, God in the Old Testament provided manna from heaven, God in the New Testament miraculously likewise provides bread because Jesus is the living and eternal one true and living God. Now, that's his identity, I'm blessed here. But this miracle not only points to who Jesus is, but also why he came. Not just his person, but his work. John records Jesus as saying these words, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, again, them just thinking of food purely, they say, well, give us some of this bread. And Jesus goes on to answer in John chapter six, I, now this is gonna be stronger, I am the bread of life, he says. And whoever comes to me shall never hunger. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on me will live forever. It's all in John six. And then I think we see the cross now even more. I, this, this is stirring to me. I just took time deliberately to read through how Jesus blessed the bread and Jesus broke the bread. Can you think of any other time that Jesus blesses bread and breaks bread? On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had broken it, he gave thanks. Thanks. And then he said, take, eat, every one of you. This is my body, broken for you. And after the meal, he took the cup, blessed it, and passed around and said, drink you, drink this, all of you, for this is my blood, shed for the payment of your sins. Jesus, here's the point, Jesus is the bread. Jesus gives life to us by his body being broken in our place, dying a sacrificial death, being buried and rising again on the third day. And man, during their communion, uh, Pastor Nick is gonna introduce a song that just the team will sing. I want us to reflect on the lyrics even now, which says of Jesus Christ, the body of our savior, Jesus Christ, torn for you, eat and remember. Now I want to go back to the question. Why is food mentioned so much and in such significant ways? What do you think? What do you think? May I suggest, may I highly commend this, to be a constant gospel reminder for us. How many here are driven by the gospel each and every second of each and every day of their lives? Hmm? and what you say yes to, and what you say no to, and how you interact with people, how you love people, how you share the gospel, how you repent We're we're chronic gospel amnesiacs, right? We forget who we are and whose we are, we forget the grace of God. So just as we must take that which is outside of us, food, in order to have physical life, right? We must take that which is outside of us, or we must take him who was outside of us, Christ, into us to have spiritual life. And what's more is, listen, you can read all the cookbooks you want. You can watch all the cooking shows you want. But that food will not benefit you unless you appropriate it by eating it. You can know about Jesus, you can read about Jesus, you can do the church thing, but unless you actually receive him, unless you actually turn from your sins and trust in him, unless you call upon him, he will not benefit you. And I believe many people have been led to a prayer but they've never actually come to a person. You got a cookbook, Jesus, and that's not a saving Jesus. Some meals, like you, I pray over, and some meals I don't. you kind of the same way, like, you know, sometimes you have people over, you're sitting down as a family, at the end of the day, you'll, you'll pray or maybe you're out, but sometimes you're just eating on the fly. And really, the, the Bible, there's no command to pray over every meal. Rather, we're commanded to have a heart of thanksgiving in everything. But perhaps, tying all this together, it would be a good opportunity, whenever we eat, to thank God for provision. Blessed be you, Lord God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth, right? The provision. But also, to thank Him for His salvation. Thank you for the cross. And thank you for this reminder of how needy I really am. That just as I will not survive physically without that which is outside of me food, I will not survive spiritually except without him, with him who is outside of me, Jesus Christ. A good opportunity perhaps. And I want to add this even. The effect food has on us is certainly nourishing us, right? Strength. Minerals, calories, protein, carbohydrates, fats, all that. Food, yes, nourishes us, but what else does food do? I can tell you what food was doing around our table last night. It was satisfying us. And I believe God then wired that into eating as well to point us to ultimate satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Does that mean everyone who eats a meal and appreciates it and is satisfied is saved? No, it says here they were satisfied, but Most of them didn't come to Christ. Nonetheless, does not the scripture say, my soul is satisfied as with fat and rich food? Do you see that analogy it uses? Taste and see that the Lord is good. So I I, want to ask you, I want you to be so truthful, so truthful here. Is, Is that your experience? Can you say right now, or if not right now, Can you ever say legitimately in the past, my soul has been satisfied in God, like I've really enjoyed God, like rested in Him and and tasted and seen that He's good? Listen, everybody has blah seasons, right? Everybody has dark seasons, right? Everybody has up and down seasons, right? That's all true for all of us. That's true for all of us. But if you're not finding satisfaction in Christ, it's not because the food's bad. Is because we're not eating. Or we have messed up our palate. Or going back to the warning I just gave, we've never been given a new palate. Can you say that the Lord is good? Can you taste and see that he is good? So feed on Christ. Now, I'm going to hit this one fast. Number one, spaknitsomai the compassion of Christ. Number two, the salvation of Christ, his person and identity. Taste and see that he is good. Come to him if you never have, truly. Number three. So the Capital One commercial goes, so what's in your wallet? And I'm gonna say, so what's in your lunchbox? In other words, the point I wanna make with this last point is, God works through people. God works through people. Jesus certainly had the power to instantaneously speak bread and fish on everybody's lap there, right? Could have done that. Maybe he could have fast-forwarded 2,000 years and brought in a massive airdrop. Big crates with parachutes and food and everything dropping. Or he could have done what we just did over Christmas, did a big Amazon order. I'm being facetious there, but you get the point? He could have just... Boom! Made it happen. Instead, after they give him that command I talked to you about, pretty audacious, he gives them a command of his own. And his command's a little bit better. And the command is very emphatic. He says in verse 16, they need not go away. You, you give them something neat. And I'm saying it's emphatic because that pronoun occurs twice in the original text. You, you give them something neat. He's being very emphatic. He is telling them, is he not to do the impossible, isn't he? He's telling them to do what they can't do. Of course, they're woefully inadequate. They can't just create food. But listen, when God tells you to do something, you got to trust him and you got to obey him. Even if you don't feel like you got the skill set and all the rest to do it. There are four options that all of us have every time God calls us to do something that we don't think we can, or we see a problem that maybe the Spirit's nudging us to address. Daniel Doriani gave three, I'm adding a fourth. The first thing that sometimes people do is they declare the situation hopeless, and they despair. Well, I can't do this, which is sort of what the disciples do at first, right? Send them away. Tell them to leave. We can't feed them. They just despair. I can't do it. You ever done that? No way I can't do it. Number two, this is my addition. Sometimes people say in the Reformed community, well, if God wants it done, it'll happen because he is sovereign. And they get fatalistic. And again, they're totally inactive. They do nothing. And that's not how God works. Number three, some people, on the other hand, swing the other way, and they work frantically to accomplish the task in their own strength. And some of us, accomplishment junkies, we've always got to be doing something. We're we going to be prone to that, can't we? But how about number four? We are simply called to obey and trust the Lord, and this work as diligently, diligently as we can as we depend on Him, right? Trust and obey, and we work as we trust in Him. So that's what they end up doing. They scour the crowd, and they come up with this little boy with five loaves, again, Small barley cakes, we know from the other Gospels, two small fish. And I was just kind of laughing to myself as I was studying through this. Because from John, we learn Andrew found that one boy. There's probably scouring, hey, buddy, got any food? Finally, this little kid, yeah, I got a five barley cakes and two fish. And I can just imagine this apostle, this disciple, to Andrew saying, hey, kid, can we have your lunch? The master wants it. And the kid, there's no, there's no sign of reluctance from this kid. Not like, well, no, it's mine. No, I'm keeping it to myself. You guys are punks for forgetting your food. I'm taking care of. There's no sign of that. I'm reading into the text a little bit, but it seems, boom, here you go. He used that little boy. And then going back to our text, he uses the disciples to distribute, miraculously multiply food. What I'm simply trying to say is God works through people. Jesus displays compassion, splach nitzomai and spreads the message of salvation, spreads the gospel through people. Through people, right? He doesn't do it in isolation. So think about the people in your life that you've experienced the compassion of God because of them. Can you think of people? You've experienced the love and compassion of God because of other people. And and, and think of people you heard the gospel through. Who the gospel through. It's not like God gave you a direct text from heaven, did he? No, somebody shared the gospel with you. So what acts of compassion might God be calling you to this year, 2024? And who is Jesus calling you to share the message of salvation with? I added something this morning. It's strong, but I, I think I need to say it. We all struggle to share the gospel, right? We all do. And I'm not into guilt-driven sharing the gospel because they'll last till about 2.03 this afternoon. We share out of grace. But sometimes we do need tough questions asked of us. If If you have no desire, say, I can't create a desire in my heart or your heart to share the gospel. What I do believe is that if you're really a Christian, there's a flicker of a desire in there, right? And I'm just trying to take some bellows and just... I can do that in my own heart and your heart. But if there is, if nowhere in your heart is a desire to share the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection with somebody that you're really, you say is a great friend, you you, you play a sport with them or you, you work with them or whatever the case may be, then I'm not sure how you or I could be a Christian if we have that. Because, To be a Christian, I believe that there's a heaven and a hell, right? And I believe there's a need for me to be reconciled. Or the words of John the Baptist who got beheaded for telling people to flee the wrath to come and to fly into the loving hands of Jesus, whom the Father in love sent. And i just asking you, like, you don't have any of that desire. You should really say, Lord, where am I with you? But if you are a Christian, somewhere it's there. And I believe God wants to use you and I to reach people with Jesus Christ in 2024. As not because you got some great skill set. Maybe all you have is five barley cakes and two old fish, but God can use that to extend his kingdom.